And uh, we are really narrowing down to the final parts of our series that we've been doing in church called The Reason for Everything, which, as I said before, sounds like a very arrogant claim, but we really believe that the Christian worldview is what explains reality, the external reality. We see things like creation and design, as well as internal uh, uh, observations that we have, like the the, the, the desire that we have for eternal life, the dignity that we see in ourselves and in others. And um, just if you are joining us for the first time, this series is a bit different to what we normally do. What you normally do, get some scripture, try and read it, try and understand it, try and apply it into our lives. And then Monday and the week following, we try and live it out. Uh, but here we're looking at the big questions that are asked of our faith. And sometimes we know how to respond. Sometimes we don't know how to respond. Sometimes these questions come from within ourselves as we have our own doubts. Or sometimes someone has asked you, a colleague or a child, let me tell you, if it hasn't happened yet and everyone around you knows that you are a Christian, the time will come when these questions will be asked of you. And today, well, let me just tell you about next week quickly, we're going to be finalizing this series with the question, what is the gospel? And while for the first nine weeks, next week will be week 10, we've been looking at the evidence which supports what we claim to believe in. Next week is going to be an unapologetic demonstration of the gospel. Here's what the Bible says is the good news, is the gospel. And I really believe it's going to be a powerful way for every single one of us to encounter God. But last week we looked at the big question, who is Jesus? The most important question that every single person needs to answer. And we saw that the evidence speaks towards a real historical figure who lived this incredible life and made these incredible claims. And if you were here last week, I I mentioned to you that just because someone claims to be God doesn't make him God. Uh, And we did talk about the fact that while some maybe dispute the fact whether Jesus did or didn't claim to be God, we saw that he actually did. But for most people, if you claim to be God, that makes you crazy or that makes you a liar. And I said to you that this is going to be the week where we look at the evidence that backs up the claim that Jesus is God. So today we're asking the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, before we dive into answering this question, I want you to imagine in your mind a dartboard. And in the sense of a normal dartboard is the kind of green part. Um, I don't know what you call that. And then you get the bullseye, the red dot. And if you talk about the Christian faith, there's a whole lot of things that fit onto the dartboard and some are more towards the edge. They're interesting to talk about that they're in the Bible and we need to wrestle with them. We need to understand them. Then there are really important things that kind of head towards the center of the dartboard. And then you get the center part, the green and the red. And for us, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which again, we're talking about next week. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But at the center of the dartboard, that red dot is the resurrection of Jesus. You see, it is on the resurrection of Jesus that everything comes together or everything falls apart. If that happened, this is all true. If that didn't happen, let's just go home. When we talk about the Christian faith, uh, we make a mistake when we sometimes take things that are kind of towards the edge of the dartboard and we try to put them in the middle. And of course, there's some things that are totally not even on the dartboard. We try to put them at the center. So we want to be a church that makes the main thing the main thing and keeps the main thing the main thing. 
And we want to talk about Jesus and make sure that we understand the importance of his life and his death. And then the center point of our faith, the resurrection. See, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he wasn't the Messiah. Dead Messiahs are failed Messiahs. Doesn't matter how much we love what he said and what he did while he was alive. If he's dead, he's failed. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and I want to explain why the resurrection is proof towards Jesus' claims. If Jesus did rise from the dead, and I just want to clarify what I mean by that. I'm not talking about a resuscitation. I'm not talking about someone who stops breathing for a few minutes. I'm not talking about someone who, you know, those, those things in the movies that you look this word up, defibrillators. You know, they put an electric shock through somebody's body and get their heart going again. I'm not talking about, you know, going through a dark tunnel, seeing the light and being pulled back into reality. I'm not even talking about what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus, as some of you may know, Jesus raised from the dead. And Lazarus was dead, like dead, dead, stinky dead. Uh, the King James Version says, he stinketh. That's how dead he was. And yet Jesus rose him from the dead. But the thing is with Lazarus is that Lazarus went on to live a life and die of old age or some other ancient disease. When we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about nailed to a cross killed, murdered, dead, in a tomb for three days, raised to life with new physical abilities to appear, disappear, have some of his wounds still visible, and yet people didn't always recognize him at first, a new body, never to die again, and to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven after the ascension. That's what I mean. See, and if that happened, that changes everything. You see, if Jesus, as wonderful as he was, claimed to be God, but wasn't God, when someone like that dies, God in heaven goes, Phew, one less crazy running around deceiving everybody, as wonderful as he was. But let me ask you a question. And again, if you're maybe more cynical and skeptical, uh, we're at the end of a long series. We've been looking at a whole bunch of evidence. So if, just imagine with me, there is a God. The kind of God that we've been describing. Imagine there is a creator behind creation. Imagine there is a designer behind the design. Imagine there is an artist behind the artistry. Imagine there is someone who actually wants to fulfill our deepest desires for hope and human dignity and love. That God. If there is such a being, who is the only being who is able to do this kind of resurrection? That kind of a God is the only kind of being that can perform this kind of resurrection. And as I said, if Jesus was not God, then the real God is going to leave him dead. But if Jesus was raised from the dead in this way, that means this God is putting his full weight behind Jesus. He's vindicating and affirming everything that Jesus claimed and everything that Jesus did. In other words, if the resurrection is true, Jesus is who he said he was. If the resurrection is not true, then he wasn't. Which is why the resurrection is at the center of our faith. 
Remember, Jesus claimed to be God. He predicted his own death. He fulfilled 465 prophecies, some of them hundreds of years, some of them thousands of years before this. He predicted he was going to be resurrected from the dead precisely because he was the Son of God. And as we look at the resurrection, I want us to understand that this is the single most important event in history. So how are we going to answer this question? Did Jesus rise from the dead? I mean, we can't do a science experiment in a lab. Even if we look at other dead bodies and we say, no, but other dead bodies don't rise from the dead. There's no evidence that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because by definition, we are claiming that this is unnatural. We are claiming, in fact, it is supernatural. It was a miracle. So just because other people don't rise from the dead doesn't mean Jesus didn't. So we can't use a science experiment to figure out whether he did or didn't rise from the dead. We can't even go into Google Earth, 9th of April, 30 AD, and, and see what we see. Because we didn't have Google Earth back then. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the claims about the resurrection of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the evidence that back up these claims. And like with what we've been doing for this entire series, we're going to look at the evidence. Does it answer this claim well? And uh, hopefully uh, you will agree with me that the evidence is very clear. So what does the Bible say about this? Um, one of the most famous claims about the resurrection was written soon after Jesus' crucifixion, written by Paul about 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. And this is what he wrote. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, this is the bullseye, all right? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, fulfilling prophecy, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now there are a whole lot of claims here. And I understand that if you're a Christian and you're a believer and you love the Bible and you have a high view of the Bible, this is enough for you. But, but I, I would guess that if you're skeptical about the resurrection, you're skeptical about the Scriptures. So is this good enough evidence for us? Well, we've already spoken about the Scriptures, the historic reliability of the Scriptures. Again, that was about two weeks ago. So uh, we recognize that what was written down, we have access to. That's what we have in front of us, just a translation into a language that we understand. However, we're going to look at these claims made by Paul and then look at the evidence and see what the evidence says. You see, there are three lines of evidence I want to talk about this morning. And every historian has to make sense of these three lines of evidence, whether you're a Christian historian or a non-Christian historian. And the first one is the empty tomb. The second one is the presence of eyewitnesses. And the third one is the impact of the resurrection. So we're going to go through all of these and see where the evidence leads. Number one, let's talk about the empty tomb. So in the Scriptures, and I understand, again, not everyone's going to trust the Scriptures, but in the Scriptures, we've got 17 ancient documents, ancient manuscripts, ancient letters describing the resurrection. Now, even if you don't recognize that that holds any weight for you, here's what we don't have. 
We don't have any ancient documents saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We don't have any news headlines from the day. Guys, you remember that Jesus guy and, and his followers and those crazy people? Well, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But just go to the tomb, we found the body. We don't have anything like that. So at the moment, the ancient manuscript in favor of the resurrection, 17 to naught. Now again, just because you and I make some crazy claims doesn't make it true, but let's see uh, how we can look at the evidence. All scholars are actually united on the fact that the tomb was empty, both Christian and non-Christian scholars. The, the, the point is this. You see, if the body was there, the Romans or the Jews who didn't want the story to pan out, who didn't want the Jesus movement to succeed, they could have just said, listen, that the body stinketh, but there it is. But no one was able to do that. And therefore, we've got to deal with, well, how do we understand the empty tomb? What happened to the body? Is something we all need to deal with. So the, there are a number of theories as to what happened to the body. The first theory is that the woman, the woman were actually the first to go to the tomb, is that they went to the wrong tomb. The theory goes something like, in their grief and in their confusion and through their tears, they just landed up going to the wrong tomb, which is maybe a little bit sexist, but uh, on the other hand, is also assuming that everyone just said, oh, you know, they said Jesus rose from the dead and everyone either believed or disbelieved her and that no one went to fact check their witness. Remember, the Romans and the Jews didn't want this to work out. So this is assuming that these guys didn't go and look or everybody went to the wrong tomb, which I find hard to believe. You know, uh, the guy whose tomb Jesus was buried in was Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the, the leading council of Jews. He was well known. He was wealthy. Everyone knew that he lived around the corner. That's where his tomb was. I, I, I can't see that all these Jews and all these Romans, that everybody went to the wrong tomb. So I, I don't know if that theory holds a lot of weight. Another theory, and it's in fact the first theory that was invented in the Bible, was that the disciples stole the body and pretended that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, my old pastor always used to say when we came to this point, he says, yeah, here's the problem with that, is, is you lie to get out of trouble, not into trouble. See, every single one of these disciples, except for the apostle John, was killed for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, at some point, if you've made up some major conspiracy to fool the world, at some point when you're being tortured for your faith, later on we're going to see that these guys were dispersed all over the Mediterranean, not able to kind of get onto FaceTime and make sure that we're all holding, you know, towing the party line here. They're all killed for their faith. At some point, you give in and you say, listen, we made that up, if that is what happened. So I don't know if that theory holds a lot of water either. And number three, the theory is that Jesus didn't really die. Now to understand what this means, if we're going to claim that Jesus didn't die, you've got to kind of think through the events preceding the crucifixion. Uh, some of you have seen the movie, The Passion of Christ. Uh, some of you, especially if you've been in church for a while, you understand that uh, when Jesus was scourged, this wasn't a gentle beating. So it's 39 lashes with a cat and nine tails kind of thing. Pieces of bone and steel and glass on the end of these whip tails where a massive muscular guy plunged these into the backs of their victims. And in this case, Jesus ripping away muscle, in some cases, ripping away uh, bones, exposing spines and ribs and organs. 
This is what happened to Jesus. So after that, then he was crucified, crown of thorns shoved into his skull, nailed to a cross, asphyxiated, wrapped in 30 kilograms of linen and embalming fluid, put into a tomb without water for three days and food, somehow resuscitated himself, got out of these restricting coils of linen cloth, moved a stone that weighs as much as a foxy, in his physical condition, overpowered some Roman gods and then walked around the country telling everybody that he rose from the dead. Now, I don't know, if I had to see someone who looked like that, I ain't believing that they rose from the dead. In addition, we need to understand that these people doing the crucifixions were trained executioners. We've got records where sometimes these Romans were crucifying up to 6,000 people in one day. They didn't have time to get this wrong. In addition, they knew if this person wasn't dying, they actually broke his legs in order that he would die faster. One of the things that is actually written down in the Gospels is that when the Romans wanted to see if Jesus was dead or not, they inserted a spear into his side. Now, aside from, the, uh, from Luke, who, who was a medical doctor, none of the other gospel writers were doctors or coroners or medical experts. But they described something very incredible. They described that blood and water came out the side of Jesus. Now, they maybe never knew what they were describing, but what we understand and medical people will tell us, that when humans' bodies are injured to the point of death, the body enters a state of circulatory shock because the blood stops going towards the organs. This results in increased fluid that looks like water around the heart and the lungs. So the disciples never knew when they were describing blood and water coming out the side of Jesus, they were giving absolute proof that Jesus was dead. So when we're talking about the open tomb, all the best theories don't seem to answer the open tomb question well. So let's look at the second line of evidence. The second line of evidence is these eyewitnesses. I mentioned earlier that the first people, the first responders to the tomb on the Sunday morning were the women. Here's the problem with that, and, and we need to go back in time. In both Roman and Jewish culture of the time, a woman's testimony was not considered valid at all. In fact, uh, this might offend you, but this is not what I'm saying. This is 2,000 years ago. The Jewish historian Josephus, he says this, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. This is what Rabbi said. Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. And the daily prayer of every Jewish man was, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And somehow they thought that prayer was acceptable to God. Why do I raise this point? You see, if you're going to make up a story about a resurrected Savior, you're not going to put women as the first responders. You're going to get someone well-known, someone trustworthy onto your side, at the very least, a bunch of men to be the people that, so at least when the story is told, no one questions the validity of their testimony. If you're making a story up, you don't include women unless that is what happened. Then, in the verse that we looked at earlier, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions 500 witnesses. Now, we've got to deal with that. I mentioned, I think it was last week, 
that, that again, if you're going to make a story up, you either go somewhere else so that no one can fact check you, or you wait until the supposed eyewitnesses have died. But Paul wrote this down 15 to 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And he actually says here, listen guys, these people are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem and ask them. Well, one, one of the theories that has been proposed about these 500 eyewitnesses was that they had some sort of mass hallucination. Now, it's not completely uncommon for someone who's grieving and for someone who's just in deep sorrow, just lost someone, to have a, a dream or a vision or some maybe experience where they maybe think they see the deceased person. One of the problems with that is um, usually they know it. Usually they know that Grandpa Fred was dead. And, and what, here's what no one does after they see some sort of apparition is phone the family up and say, Grandpa Fred has risen from the dead. The other difficulty with this theory is that there is not one medical case on record where more than one person has had the same hallucination, let alone 500 people. Then we've got James. James is mentioned in these verses too. James is Jesus' brother. In John chapter 7, we see that none of Jesus' brothers actually believed in who he was while he was alive. I'm sure they had some insane theories as to why their brother was so weird and different. But none of the theories was that Jesus is who he said he was. And yet, when we look at the scriptures and we look at church history, we see that James became the leader of the biggest, most influential church of that time in Jerusalem. So what happened? Uh, Andy Stanley, who's an American pastor, he often says when he speaks about James, I mean, if, for those of you who've got brothers, what does your brother need to do to convince you he's God? Something happened to James to move him from not Jesus to yes, Jesus. Paul claims it is the resurrection that changed the mind of the brother of Jesus. And then finally, Paul references himself as an eyewitness. Now that might sound circular. Well, why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, because, you know, ask me. Well, you're the one making up the theory. Why must I believe you? We need to understand who Paul was. Paul, at the time of Jesus' life, was a devoted Jew, so zealous to the point of imprisoning and Christians, putting them to death, trying to put an end to this Jesus movement. And yet Paul went from killing Christians to being killed for being a Christian. This Paul went from burning churches to planting churches. And he would claim the point that turned it all around for him was when he became an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. One last thing that I want to say about these guys is that none of these people, none of these eyewitnesses were kind of like, you know, when they got to the death of Jesus, oh, we really thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Here's what wasn't happening on Sunday morning. All of Jesus' followers outside the tomb waiting for the resurrected Jesus to blast out. To a person, every single one of the eyewitnesses I've just mentioned believed that Jesus was dead and was going to stay dead. They thought the movement was over. They thought the Messiah was not the Messiah. Mary, we heard about her earlier. At first, she thought she was seeing a gardener. 
Peter thought the body was stolen. Thomas refused to believe until he saw the evidence. None of them expected the resurrection. And yet here are every single one of them standing as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And we need to be able to explain that. So I mentioned the three lines of evidence. The third line of evidence we're going to look at this morning is the impact of the resurrection. To date, no anthropologist has been able to explain why Christianity started off with such humble beginnings and exploded to be the movement that it is and that it was. Remember, Jesus' first disciples were poor, marginalized, uneducated from Galilee, which is kind of like saying from some small town in the free states. And yet they went on to become so bold and courageous, spreading the gospel, planting churches, and to a person, except for the Apostle John, to a person dying for these claims. Paul was beheaded in AD 66 under Emperor Nero. Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't consider himself worthy enough to be crucified right way up like his Savior Jesus, also in Rome under the Emperor Nero. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was pierced through by spears, spreading the gospel in India. Philip converted the wife of a Roman proconsul in Asia Minor, whose husband found out and cruelly put him to death. James was stoned and then clubbed to death in Syria, and so it goes on. See, if Jesus actually died, this movement would have died. In the centuries preceding Jesus' life and death, and also in the first century, there were many messiahs, many movements that started. They had a little core of followers. But every single one of those messiahs or those would-be messiahs were executed for their claims. And when they died, every single one of them stayed dead. And with that, as much as they had some uh, zealous followers, every single one of those movements died. So how did Christianity go from this point to the point where, uh, remember for the first three centuries of the Christian faith, Christians were put to death. They were arrested simply for being a Christian. Yet by the time Constantine became emperor in the early fourth century, some studies say that Christians accounted for up to one third of the Roman Empire. That growth has continued to happen to the point where over 2.2 billion people on the face of this earth claim Jesus as their Lord. See guys, this idea of the resurrection has real implications. I know we live in a society where we have what we call easy believism. Where we kind of give some sort of mental assent to some things that maybe granny taught us or mom and dad taught us or maybe go to church and that we go back to life unchanged. But we don't need to go too far. I mean, more people have been martyred in the last century than the previous 19 centuries. We don't need to go too far to where people really are presently being persecuted for being a Christian. Right now in China, churches are being burnt, Christians and pastors are being arrested, and some of them even killed for being a Christian. You may remember that scene when ISIS was going through and cleansing the Middle East of Christians. Those 19 Coptic Christians in their red cloaks with their black hats over them, with the ISIS members with a knife at their throats. I mean, that's in our day and age. Where Christians are expressing such courage and fearlessness for the sake of the gospel. 
We just need to go and study some of the persecution events in the first three centuries to see that people who claimed to be Christians were so courageous and so fearless. See, what happens when the biggest thing that you could be afraid of, and maybe for some of you that would be being tortured and then ultimately killed for your faith, when you lose your fear of that, man, you're not going to be afraid of anything. I know so many of us here this morning live in fear. We're defined by fear. We make our decisions based on fear. And I understand why in some cases. But I wonder how many people in this room could be described as fearless. And when you dig beneath their fearlessness, you see a faith in the resurrection of Jesus who defeated death. In the fourth century, kind of middle to late, uh, sorry, in the second century, uh, middle to late second century, uh, the, the Roman emperor was Marcus Aurelius. He oversaw the fourth great persecution of Christians. And I was reading up some of the stats as to how these Christians were tortured and killed. And it's absolutely frightening. I'm not even going to try to describe that to you this morning. There's a famous medical doctor at that time. His name was Marcus Galenus. And we've got his writings written down. Six times in his writings, he referenced Christians. See, at the time, in about AD 150, working on a dead body was outlawed, which meant that if you were a medical doctor or a surgeon, you had to work on dying bodies. So what doctors used to do, they used to hang around the arenas so that as these Christians were tortured and almost killed, these doctors could work on their bodies before they actually died. And these doctors and someone like Marcus Galenus, they would have seen this dozens of times. And listen to what he said about these Christians who were going through just the worst that humanity could bring and give. And listen to what he says. Remember, this is not 20 years after Jesus. This is 150 years after Jesus. This is what he wrote down. You can go fact check this. He says this. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. I don't know if I could be in that position. Someone operating on me after I've just been tortured. And if someone could say of me, he's fearless. He is fearless of death. And he is fearless of the hereafter. And I I do understand that the series we've been going through and, and even today has been kind of more head than heart. More intellect than kind of passion. But when people really get that this claim, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8, that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins, buried in a tomb for three days, rose from the dead, resurrected to new life. When people get that, something changes within them. (laughs) I want more of that for me. I want more of that for us as a church. I want more of that for you. I'd love my boys to say of me, my dad was fearless. Not because he was an idiot, but because he believed in the resurrection. This is why C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
Paul said it this way, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. A few verses later, he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're still wrestling. You're looking at some of the evidence and you're still weighing it up in your mind and you don't know how to respond to it. Or maybe you are dealing with someone in your families, your kids, your parents, colleague, and you've been walking a road with them. Maybe they've been listening to these podcasts and they're still saying, ah, I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I'm ready to cross the line. I want to encourage you with two stories that come out of the Bible. The first is I mentioned Thomas. See, all the disciples go to Thomas. Hey, Thomas, Jesus actually rose from the dead and we've seen it. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe you until I see him myself. And I want to put my fingers through the holes in his hands and feet and I want to touch the spear wound on his side and then I'll believe. And famously, Jesus arrives and he shows Thomas. And on one hand, he does call him to greater faith. But on the other hand, he actually comes down to his level and shows him the evidence. And Thomas believes. I also want to talk about a man whose son was demon-possessed, showing all these crazy symptoms, and he came up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I know that you can heal my son. Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I do believe. And then he says this, but help me overcome my unbelief. And then Jesus responded to that, not with a rebuke, but by healing his son. I wonder how many of you are sitting here this morning saying, I, I, I feel like I'm believing. I feel like I'm right there. I feel like I'm about to cross the line. But Jesus, I may be being as bold as to say, help my unbelief. And I want to encourage you to maybe have the courage to pray that. I understand that, and maybe some of you have experienced that, that to cross the line of faith where we move simply not from just mentally saying, well, you know, here are some facts about this person called Jesus, but now I'm going to trust him with my whole life. I understand that requires such great courage, such great fearlessness. What's my family going to say? What's my wife going to say? What's my husband going to say? What are my kids going to say? What are my colleagues going to say if I come to work tomorrow and I say, okay, guys, I'm a Christian. And yes, there's all this evidence, but maybe we're afraid of that. And so I, I want to begin allowing some time for us to, and maybe if we can just play some music very gently in the background. I want to allow us some time to respond to what may be starting off as a very intellectual process is becoming so real about real faith in life. I want to pray for some of us and then allow some time and space for us here in church to pray for one another, for those who want it. I want to pray for those who are feeling like Thomas, who are feeling like this man and his son, who are experiencing some doubts and I, I want to believe but I'm experiencing these doubts I, I want this evidence to make sense to me and then I'll believe or maybe you're saying I want to believe but Jesus would you help my unbelief I want to pray for you 
But I also believe there are many here this morning who would say yes, loudly and clearly, Jesus rose from the dead and He is the Son of God that you know that you are being ruled by fear. And maybe it's very real fear. Maybe you fear for your life. Maybe you fear for the lives of your kids. And I don't know what your circumstances are. And just like these early Christians, I want to pray that the resurrection flicks a switch in your heart that moves you out of fear. Moves you into courage and boldness. Where the people around you will say, he or she is so courageous and fearless. So Father, I pray for those of us here this morning who have heard this evidence either today or even the weeks preceding and somehow just not at the point where we're able to concede. Jesus, I'm so aware that instead of rebuking us in those moments, you meet us there. You meet us at our point of unbelief. And I ask that you do that this morning. Help our unbelief, Jesus. Meet us there. Invite us. Just as Paul encountered a risen Jesus, may it be an encounter with the risen Jesus that ultimately moves us across the line of faith. God, as we are maybe journeying with those who are still doubting and are journeying with unbelief, give us great patience and wisdom. At the same time, God, we pray for all those that we are journeying with that you would help their unbelief. And God, I pray for all of us for courage. It takes courage to admit that this is true when the whole world, in spite of the evidence being found lacking, the whole world would silence the resurrection. God, give us courage to stand for something that we know to be true. But also give us the courage that comes from life in Christ, the resurrected Savior alive in us, supernaturally transforming and changing us. So church, I want to ask that we all stand at this point. We all stand. I want to ask that we, we're going to pray for one another and provide an opportunity and a space for those who want prayer be prayed for just you in your seat if you're just man you're just like on board with today and you're there and you're the converted just pray for God to continue moving but if you want prayer for any of the things I touched on this morning courage and, and a living faith maybe crossing the line of faith maybe even declaring yes Lord I'll mind belief we want to pray for you there's nothing magic about my prayers but we do come to a God who hears our prayers. So church, just where you are, continue to pray. I'm not going to, I'm going to shut up now. I want you to take over. We're going to be praying, praying in faith, worshiping the risen Savior. If you want to be prayed for, prayer team, if you can be available up front, and we're going to pray. Let the music minister to you. Father, we ask that you continue to work in power in our time amongst us this morning.